0: Hi, I'm Rachel.
1: And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hi, and welcome to another Tuesday Morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. We're so thrilled you are here with us today. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of gender essentialism and what that is, how that relates to Christianity, and how that relates to feminism throughout the ways that we've discussed gender and what that looks like. So Rachel, for you, what has gender essentialism within the Catholic tradition? What was that like growing up, and what is it for you now?
0: I'm somebody who was raised with a lot of John Paul II's theology of the body, which has a very particular understanding of gender essentialism, which is now sort of What is held to be true about gender in much of at least american christianity i don't have a lot of experience with other christianities or catholicisms but certainly within the u.s theology of the body gender essentialism is what sort of is held up by the u.s council of catholic bishops as being the most true and certainly is something that's taught in the more in line with the vatican documents and Mm -hmm. schools and it's what gets the imprimatur, which is this fancy stamp from the Vatican that says, this is what we say is a true document that's reflecting the teachings of the church. So mm-hmm. Theology of the Body is a really important document when we're talking about gender essentialism. Not that it creates that theology, but it certainly made it more widespread and and made it something that people who are in the age group of being a millennial <laughs> or beyond are going to be raised with. And I have the Theology of the Body document right next to me because I wanted to at least mention a particular passage so that those of you who are familiar with that document know where to look and those of you who are not familiar with it could go look it up because it's also online because these were all talks that John Paul II gave over the course of many years. And the part that talks specifically, at least the, the main part that's like really strong that talks about this concept of gender essentialism is 17 colon 3, if you're reading along or want to look that up later, but it's when it's talking about the exchange of the gift in the beginning of Genesis. So in, you know, Genesis 2.25, where it's man and woman meet each other for the first time. And part of what John Paul II sort of speaks to in that, in his description of this meeting, is that, you know, Eve is intentionally created by God out of Adam's rib. And when Eve is presented to Adam, Adam receives that gift. However, the way in which Adam receives that gift is in a style that enables him to actually be giving the gift of reception to Eve. In the same way, he'll also state that Eve is giving herself to Adam Mm -hmm. as a gift, but at the same time, she's able to receive his reception of that gift, which completes the cycle of gift giving. Mm. What this ends up turning out to mean, according to JP two, as he moves through the document, is that women, while we do give gifts sometimes, always give in a receiving way. Men can receive things, but are always receiving in a giving way. Because of... The way our anatomical genitalia function so women because we have a vagina which receives a penis are always in a receptive mode men because they have a penis and in the the penis and vagina sex act <laughs> are inserting their penis into the vagina are always giving and what this means is that women in our roles in society must match our physiology. Mm. So we must always be in a receptive space. Even if we are giving as you know, Eve is gifting herself to Adam in that first moment of meeting in Genesis, she's doing so still in a receptive way. And men, even when they are receiving, are still doing so in a giving fashion. Mm. If you feel confused at this point, you are like <laughs> most of the population when they hear this theology, because it seems real confusing and it sort of puts you in this like mind twister of trying to make sense of what he's trying to articulate. But the reality is is that for Catholicism, we are so based in the concept of natural law, which says that every physical thing has a telos or a a telos is like an intended purpose. Mm-hmm. And that when we look at our bodies, we can find information about what the telos that God intended for that that anatomical thing is and so when we look at a penis the intention of the penis is to be inserted into the vagina ejaculate and potentially get her pregnant or get yeah we'll say her because we're doing gender essentialism anyway (laughs) similarly the vagina has one purpose which is to receive semen so that a woman can get pregnant and so from this gender essentialism standpoint we get all of those theologies about sex being primarily for procreation, while we can also recognize that there's a unitive component to sexuality. And that's where uh, *Humane Vitae, which is a document that was put out by Paul VI, very clearly states that sex is, for, is unitive and procreative, and it needs to be both every time you have sex. And that comes from a gender essentialism lens. Mm-hmm. Somehow in that document, it doesn't really talk about like, well, what do we do when you know, a woman is postmenopausal or, you know, that kind of thing because women's sexuality isn't acknowledged in those documents most of the time because they're written by men and men don't think about things like menopause or stuff like that. Not being able to
1: procreate or not being able to, um, not being ovulating, not ovulating.
0: Right. What they're saying usually is that, you know, we want to be open to procreation So as long as you're not using a condom or hormonal birth control, you're you're still in the clear, even if you aren't ovulating, because the church really does push teaching women natural family planning, Mm,
1: um, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. the
0: Catholic version of fertility awareness method. And it says that that should be the only form of birth control that one uses. And that you should only avoid pregnancy under very certain circumstances when you feel like there's financial hardship or something like that. Anyway, but the the main point is that from this gender essentialism standpoint, we get this idea. It comes from natural law. It comes from this concept of a talos. And then it gets, our bodies end up getting defined by their features rather than our internal reality really mattering. And what JP2 writes about really is that like, our bodies are such an important component of who we are as individuals, as souls, that our souls are impacted by our our physic, uh, by our physicality. And I, I don't think that's wholly wrong. I mm-hmm. just think that he's wrong in making it so binary. And mm-hmm. I also don't love the idea that our, yeah, I don't love the idea that our bodies define our souls, I think, or that our souls define our bodies. I think that's a whole other concept of theological anthropology that needs to be parsed out at, at a later date, but the general the general concept is women have to always be receiving, men have to be always giving, and along with that comes all these like societal gender norms. Right. They sometimes push the boundaries and say things like, but we look at Joan of Arc and we celebrate her expression of of herself even though it wasn't, it was in conflict with the standard stereotypical gender norms of the time.
1: Um, yeah. But then is there a justification for Joan of Arc in terms of her being like, uh, like, well, she was a virgin or are there ways in which she's uh, put into like the woman's role, even despite the fact that she's also like a really huge trans character in the the trans community as well?
0: You know, not entirely. I'm looking at the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops website right now and it does have a, Um, The paragraph that I I pulled that from says, it is important to distinguish sexual difference and differences between individual men and women. Cultural stereotypes about the sexes, while they may have some basis in fact, do not define sexual difference. In the church, we honor saints who do not embody cultural stereotypes and St. Joan of Arc is one example. A man who is sensitive and artistic is no less a man and a woman who is competitive on the sports field is no less a woman. So it doesn't really push as much towards saying like, no, but she, she's still being feminine in whatever way. It's okay. not, it doesn't flesh that out as much as you might think it would. I'm sure there's somebody out there who does it, but the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops is not giving you a theology of Joan of Arc's gender bending right. that feels particularly boxed in.
1: Which is, I mean, it's just interesting because my experience with Joan of Arc was directing a piece about Joan of Arc, and I did it from a, queer perspective in terms of like embracing a queer image of a devout woman and or i mean i'm using woman because that's how she was used at the time she was considered a woman at the time that she lived she may not be considered a woman if she had lived in 2021 um, or not defined herself as one but um to be able to so i understand her much more not as a saint as i've come to understand her since studying at a catholic university, but I understood her in a Protestant realm is just like an image of queerness. So it's just so interesting to hear, hear her talked about in a way that's like, no, 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 she's still fully within our lines of what gender is. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I really question if she would have been if she was alive today. I think that she would have probably been within the LGBTQ field based upon my understanding of her life.
0: And she, I don't think she's alone in that if we go through saints there's a bunch of them that like you end up are very clearly um there's lots of them that are homosexual that are very clearly homosexual if you read back their stories but we have a lot of females in the church most of them in fact that actually made names for themselves go against the gender norms of their day right Right. somebody like hildegard of bingen she could read at a time where women couldn't read. She she composed music at a time when women didn't compose music. That might sound small now, but that was a massive shift. Um, Julian of Norwich, same thing. Like, she, actually, she's who I was thinking of. She composed music and wrote things. I think Hildegard probably did, too. But those oh, weren't Kildegard normal was a great things composer. that women at the time did. And right. Julian's not actually Julian of Norwich's name. That's just the name of the building she was in. <laughs> She has a real well, name, but nobody knows it.
1: I mean, I think Hil I just want to like Hildegard, I think, had access to those things as well because of her position uh, as a noble, noble woman. So there's a lot of things that she was able to get away with that women would not have been able to get away with because of her class. Like it was almost like her brothers and her sisters had so much political power in southern Germany that like it was hard to mess with her. And so she I mean, and I'm not denying the things that she did because she's one of my favorite saints. but, um, yeah well, I also think of Thecla who um put on men's clothes as like and and traveled by herself, which was like in greco-Roman culture that was like, what like what is this woman doing? Uh, yeah it's it's really interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about gender essentialism in the evangelical church and how it's it's very similar, but I think because evangelicals don't really have like an institution. And for those who are listening who don't maybe know this, there is really no like evangelical institution. There's no like building that you can go to where like, there's the head of the evangelical church. There are evangelical denominations. um, And so there are people who are head, there are heads of evangelical churches. Um, So there really isn't, um, there isn't no, there is no stamp to say like, this is our theology. But there is uh, the Danvers Statement, which talks about male and female roles. And I am going to mess up when this was written. Um, It was recently. It was in the past 10, 15 years. Um, And essentially, the Danvers Statement talks about male headship and female submission. And that it is God's ordained order that the man is the head of the household. And with that, it also combats LGBTQ rights in terms of marriage equality by saying that marriage is made for one man and one woman. It also uh, goes into women's ordination and says that women are not meant to be leaders or to teach, um, which is um, one thing that I think is really interesting when we talk about ordination, which is again, another podcast entirely, but In the Catholic church, women have positions of leadership, but they cannot perform priestly rites like Eucharist, baptism, correct? Everybody can baptize. Oh, interesting.
0: There are specific- slave person can baptize. But every other thing that you can think of, priests do marriages, deacons can also do marriages. Confessions. Um, Confessions, actual Eucharist changing from wine to- Right bread to body and blood. Um,
1: Last rites. Mm. So there's specific things that a woman, a a priest does that, um, that women can't do in the Catholic church. In many Protestant and evangelical churches where women are not ordained, women cannot teach the Bible. There are theology schools that will not allow a woman to teach biblical studies. Um, There are, you can't lead a Bible study. You can't, um, you could certainly not be in charge of the head of a seminary, which I know there are nuns that are in charge of many Catholic seminaries. Certainly couldn't do that. Would not be allowed to be in a leadership position ever over a man. And that is very much fleshed out in the Danvers Statement. And so much a part, part of that is that God has created a ordained hierarchy of genders. So you are a man and you are over the woman. And some people will go so far as to just put it, well, not so far, they will just put it within marriage. And so say like the husband is the head of the wife, but it, growing up, it was very much, and I know I'm not alone in this, there was this idea that if there was a guy at our Bible study, like our youth group Bible study, he should lead the prayer, not a woman, because he's a man. Um, There were, there was a lot of emphasis on pushing the guys into leadership positions in the church. uh, They would sometimes preach during youth group and various things like that. And very, a woman could share her testimony, but a man is the one who preaches. And uh, there's a lot of ways that different churches understand this. So some people listening might be like, well, my church allowed women to do X, Y, and Z, and you're saying they couldn't. But that's because because there's no like official stamp on what it's supposed to be like, It it's very much taken within each elder board, pastor or denominations, personal interpretation of what that means. But one of the things that I think is really uh, interesting, and you kind of were talking about how there's like this, this thing that happens where you take what's in scripture and like how, JP2 took Adam and Eve and then you muddle it with like gender theory in a way that like doesn't really make sense and it, it kind of like bastardizes the gender theory and bastardizes the scripture at the same time and the thing that I kept thinking about was this book called love and respect which was a huge book and I think still is in, um, in many conservative spaces that says men were made to be respected and women were made to be loved. And he takes it out of the verse that says wives respect your husbands and husbands love your wives, which is, I mean, from a exegesis standpoint, it's like not even, it's so complicated. It's not really Paul's not really talking about marriage. He's not writing a, a text about like uh, h- how to have a healthy marriage. Paul was, if we really look at Paul's writing on marriage, y'all, he was really saying like, don't get married, focus your life on ministry, like be like me and don't get married. And so I don't think Paul- Because was...
0: he thought that like Jesus's second coming was going to happen oh, imminently. Yes, yes of so course. So it was con- still contextual information there that like, oh, absolutely say that now, because now we're pretty sure that like Jesus's second coming, probably not going to happen tomorrow.
1: Right but we
0: believe that to be a literal thing yes i don't but no
1: but so but i just want to say like i'm trying to say that within the context of like so many protestants use paul's writings as like a relationship guidebook and if you are going to be looking at it as a relationship guidebook um he's not encouraging marriage in any way but he's not writing a relationship guidebook he's writing a theological text about the understanding of christ and salvation and it would be great if we listen to that But instead we don't. And so this love and respect idea is a big movement where if your marriage isn't working out, it's probably because you're not respecting your husband enough. And if you're a man, it's probably because you're not loving your wife enough. And when you throw in like details, like, well, so husbands, you should bring home flowers for your wife because that will make her feel loved. And wives, you should have dinner ready when he comes home from work because that will make him feel respected. And then um, women will say like, but I like being respected. Like, what do you mean like, I I enjoy it when he says, like, thank you when I do something and it makes me feel respected. And they're like, no, 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 you, you feel loved. You're wrong. You feel loved. And like, of, or they'll like, say like, of course, women want to be respected. And of course, men want to feel love But like, ultimately, men want to feel respected. And ultimately, women want to feel loved, which just throws in like, so many problems when it comes to like, no, men, men need love. Like, and women need respect but like i i often kind of cringe not just because what it does to women but also the ways that it reinforces like very broken emotional health for men in saying that they don't need love like oh like ah oh, oh. um there's like 12 things
0: i want to respond to
1: <laughs>
0: but one <laughs> one is that And they're both related to this like dominating situation of of women be subordinate to your husband's sort of mentality um and it's interesting because in theology of the body john paul ii actually talks about how that concept of power over another is is actually part of original sin and is innately a part of how we are living in a, in a fallen, in quotation marks, world because of our being kicked out of the garden. And I'm trying to find like a good quote from it. But basically, if you want to follow along and read this at some point in time, it's 32 colon two. But basically what I wrote in my notes was like, sex after the fall had a tendency to be less satisfying in part because of the way that gender dynamics function and because Mm -hmm. there's a tendency on the masculine side to over-dominate the feminine and because there's a tendency on the feminine side to not be fully present to their own needs and desires and wants. And I mean, JP2 is not going to push it quite as far as I just did in that statement, but he does speak to the fact that part of the the negative understanding of dominance is actually, or the over domination of men on the over women um, mm-hmm. is because of the fall of man, which I think is super fascinating. Yeah. The other thing that I was coming up as you were talking specifically about the book that was speaking toward women needing to feel loved and men needing to feel respected is so much of that comes from our socialization of what it means to be married and how that has changed over the course of history. And if you're interested in that change, I highly recommend a book known as the called the all or nothing marriage. Mm. Um, And that's by Eli Finkel. Um, And what he talks about is how nowadays as contemporary society, we want marriage to mean so much more and have so much involved in it than previous generations did. And so it sounds like that guy is describing in his book, I assume it's a man that wrote that book. Yeah. (laughs) Is he wants to go back to an understanding of marriage that was potentially useful in the 1800s, but is no longer Mm -hmm. the way that we view marriage now. We expect our marriage partner to be part of how we come to self-actualization. And that was something that nobody knew what the heck self-actualization was in the 1800s unless they had a lot of means and were very creative. But most people didn't even think about that because they were just thinking about my role. They were living within their roles in society in such a way where that wasn't really questioned much. Right. And I think that's where that sort of thing is not only said as biblical, but it's also super socially located and time-oriented in its understanding of both gender and and marriage and
1: all right of that kind of thing. And I think the dangerous thing is that it often then intersects with like our understanding of spirituality and how um how we understand ourselves there's a there's a book I don't really want to say its name because I don't want people to buy it um but it talks about it, there's so many books written by women that support this gender hierarchy within gender essentialism and it says that uh, and actually, as as I'm going, I want to acknowledge that we are using very binary language, and I think it's because we're talking about how people discuss binary, but very often, uh, like, he and she are, are fluid terms, and I think we're planning on getting into that more and more as we go through the rest of this conversation, but I just want to acknowledge how binary our language is because we're battling binary arguments in this, in this conversation. Um, but these these people, these women write these books that support this hierarchy. And often it ends up going into these spaces where it removes their responsibility for spiritual development. And it puts the responsibility of their spiritual development onto their husband. That God now speaks to me through my husband. So this one woman told a story about how she left seminary Uh, because her husband was also in seminary and he was like, we can't afford for both of us to be in seminary. And since you're going to be a wife and mother and not going to go into full-time ministry, I'm saying that you're not going to complete your seminary degree. And whether she wanted to do that or not, which based upon her book, I would assume that she was okay with that decision. her, Her justification for it was that her husband was now the person who God was going to speak to her through which from a protestant perspective that's really broken as well because the whole point of the protestant reformation was that god speaks to us directly and we don't need an interceder to to receive instruction from god like that was like the whole thing and it's now saying that like no actually women do have an interceder and it is and it is your husband and or your priest or your pastor if you're not married and that god will speak to you through through these other means, because your ability to understand scripture and have a relationship with God is tainted as, because not tainted, they wouldn't say tainted, they would just say, it's God's ordained order. It's not tainted, it's just the way God made it. You are supposed to be under a husband. And for them, that is also, and I run into this a lot because in my programs, I talk about the divine feminine. And a lot of times, women will hear when I say feminine and there's so much trauma from being told this is what being feminine means, that the idea of femininity being liberating, being yours, being good, being feminist even, which is very interesting, is impossible because being feminine, and according to this gender essentialism within evangelicalism means staying home, listening to your husband, cooking dinner, taking, your ki- taking care of your kids, and taking care of your husband, which is not femininity at all. Um, but it's been just, it's defined that way.
0: And I think what's interesting is that there's a movement within Catholicism of the concept of theology of the home. Mm. And I think we don't want to discount that Like there is certainly value in feeling called to motherhood and homemaking. And that is an amazing calling and something that is not mine. And I very much am impressed by the people who can do that and feel like that is their, that is the thing that they're meant to do and can do it with love and compassion and patience and all of the, and organizational skills. But but it's not
1: uniquely feminine and it's not uniquely female because a man is perfectly capable and able to love their children, which that's the other thing I get nervous about, like men can love their children, men can feed their children, men can dress their children, men can care for their children. Like these are all things that men are capable of doing. And we, for some reason, not we, but like this, this system ends up saying that like men are not, blessed with those skills when it's sad to me because I know so many men who really, really love their kids and like really, really want to take care of them and be good to them. And so it's a beautiful calling to stay at home and take care of your children, but it doesn't make you a woman. It makes you a parent.
0: Or it makes you feminine. It doesn't make you even, it, it doesn't even make you it feminine. It certainly doesn't make you a woman. It also doesn't make you feminine to do right. that. Which it I just makes you a parent. That's a really good distinction because I don't want to like we don't want to discount the fact that there are women that feel called to do things that are traditionally considered feminine. That's great. That's cool. But also let's maybe not use the word feminine to attribute Describe to things, things that
1: are are ultimately non-gendered actions. Right. And and I and I even think it's it's funny cuz like the thing these things like making muffins for your kids well, then what about a baker who makes really good muffins? Are they feminine because they made muffins? Oh, no, it's not feminine because they did it in a store. Like no, it's that's not femininity. Baking is not making <laughs> is not feminine. Well, it can be, but it doesn't it's not essentially feminine. It's not it's not fall into this category of femininity. And as we talk about this, I'm thinking about
0: like the gay men I know who have kids and what great loving parents they are right fathers they are to their children and that's they're not negating their masculinity as they are changing a diaper they are simply being a parent to a child who needs their diaper changed
1: and there are lesbian couples where like they would fall under like the stereotype of like a masculine woman who stays at home and cares for her kids as well is she suddenly becoming less of a masculine woman because she's Baking? Like that's just not how it works. Like I think like, is especially sugar, is it turning the knob on the oven? I don't know what does it. What makes you feminine?
0: Like, especially during the pandemic, as we're all learning how to bake bread all the time. Like no right. longer is baking a feminine action. It is a needed action for calming ourselves during challenging times. Yeah. Regardless.
1: Well, yeah. And this makes me think a lot about. You know, a lot of my programs talk about the divine feminine, like I said, and like, I get like a lot of like, sometimes a little bit of fear when I say that because they're like, I just worship God like a Christian, I don't worship God like a woman, I don't worship God. And my programs are for anyone who defines themselves as woman or femme, because that is anyone who's interested really in exploring femininity within their spirituality is included. And so it makes me think about like, well, then what is femininity? And how does how does our understanding of femininity affect our understanding of spirituality and divinity? And how does that um, how does that like how does gender essentialism kind of get into feminist theology and kind of mess a lot of things up? And we talked a little bit about about this before we started recording. And I was talking about how there's these debates within feminist spaces that want God to be defined as female which I'm totally down with, like if you wanna use female, female pronouns for God, I use female pronouns for God, like she's amazing, all those things, it's, it's good. But because God has been so deeply essentialized as male, it swings into the other direction where it begins to essentialize God as female. And then what we end up doing is missing the spectrum within how all people are the Imago Dei, whether you're intersex, trans, queer whatever wherever you fall into the gender spectrum you are the image of god and so god is also within the entire spectrum of gender and um i thought about this because it it was coming up when i was doing a reading um, about mary magdalene and there is a movement that understands mary magdalene as the female christ which i'm not really like i'm cool with like that doesn't really like disrupt me too much But the thing that I constantly wonder as I listen to it is why does there have to be a female Christ? Why does there, why if there's a male Christ, must there be a female Christ? Why, why can't Christ just be fully genderless or gender within the gender spectrum and encompass all of them? Why must we hold on to a binary? And yes, there are these, as Rachel, you mentioned, like there are these gender poles, but how we, how we understand ourselves within that spectrum is also represented in God, or at least should be. And I don't think it contradicts scripture to say that either.
0: That's also an interesting Christology, which for those of you who don't know what that word means, it's the study of the concept of Christ. Because Jesus and Christ are two different things. Mm -hmm. Jesus... And I think Richard Rohr says this really nicely in The Universal Christ, where he says, you know, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Mm -hmm. It's not Jesus Christ, one conglomerated thing. It's Jesus, the human person who walked this planet, which Larry and I were talking about this earlier. Like, Jesus is definitely a dude. He's a man. He was considered a man at his time. We don't doubt that he has a penis or or had one depending upon whether or not you believe fully depends on your christology (laughs) Um, (laughs) but christ is this concept that transcends jesus the individual human being and depending again on your christology my christology would say that christ is a concept that is non-gendered that encompasses and especially when you talk about the body of christ that the Mm -hmm. body of christ encompasses all of humanity Mm -hmm. in all of our different gendered existences. Yes. As well as, I also put it into, you know, animals and plants and all living things, but all of creation generally also are encompassed in that concept of Christ. Some people stop at humans, some people stop at living things, some people stop at something before then, but Christ is, is a larger concept that encompasses all of creation rather than Jesus is the person who saved us through this one act he did once. Um, I don't subscribe to substitutionary atonement in that regard. And it sounds like that collapse of Jesus into Christ or Christ into Jesus the individual is what makes that particular Christology problematic to me. Well, and also what makes it even necessary to have a female Christ because that doesn't make any sense if we're talking about Christ as a universal concept as opposed to something linked to an individual person's body.
1: We should maybe bring someone on who knows more about this theology than I do, because I feel like anyone who subscribes to it that's listening might be like wringing their hands and pulling out their hair because I'm sure I'm messing up, messing it up. And, um, and I find if part of my character is if I don't understand something, I like push it to the side until I understand it. And then I'm like, Oh, no, I totally agree with that. That's great. So I'm sure I'm I'm sure I'm making somebody pull their hair out right now as they're listening to this. So perhaps we should have someone come on and explain it better than I can. And if you are that person,
0: you can email us. Um, Yes, please do. I'm thinking to myself though, when I've read things that talk about this concept of Mary Magdalene as as a female Christ-like figure, it really is coming from this space of, she was somebody who followed Jesus, who had a really deep understanding of what he was really trying to articulate Mm-hmm. And we see this in things like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, where, you know, Peter, I think, says something that's completely not correct. And Jesus is like, you don't have the answer, Peter. It's Mary that's got the, the right answer on this one. And that sort of is a repeating theme in that particular gospel. But also it, it can come up in other places, too, even in the, the ones that we see normally, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right. And I think where Peter thinks he knows what-, what he's
1: talking about.
0: Part of what they're trying to pull out is simply the idea that Mary Magdalene really got what Jesus was talking about, and that perhaps there was a way in which she, because of her deeper understanding of the concept of Christ, was able to inhabit that and embody that more fully as she walked through the planet in the same way that, that Jesus did that in a very masculine, male-bodied way, that Mary Magdalene perhaps did that in a more feminine, female-bodied fashion. Right. That might perhaps make that sound a little bit less terrible to those of you who prescribed to that. <laughs> but there is this sort of problematic thing of like, are we a binary. collapsing Jesus in Christ?
1: Yes. And, and I think it creates, can sometimes create a binary. And so what I kind of wanted to do was also like, kind of talk about like what the feminine is and what the masculine is, at least for me and how I understand it. And Rachel, like you can also share for yourself how you understand it, because I do think masculinity and femininity is a thing And I think the feminine is certainly um, oppressed in our society because I think that if a woman chooses to wear a dress, she's more subject to sexual harassment than if she was wearing completely covered up. And if a person with traditional male parts put on a dress, they're also more subject to sexual harassment than uh, if not. And so I think that there's a way in which we see the feminine as something to be owned and to be possessed and to be sequestered and silenced. And we see the masculine as something that carries authority and power and, um, res- and should be respected. And it ends up really becoming a, a messed up, messed up when we put it in, into a gender essentialism within our bodies, instead of understanding the masculine and feminine as equal, and then also understanding the masculine and feminine within ourselves as well. And so for me, and I'd be interested to hear what your definition is too, like the masculine, oddly enough, like kind of how JP2 talks about it, is the giving energy, and the feminine is the receiving energy within the self. And the feminine is pleasure-focused, the masculine is product-focused, the feminine is desire-motivated, the masculine is goal-motivated. And that's something that exists within all of us, no matter where you fall on the gender spectrum. And it is, a, it is part and one thing that for me gets so messed up when we talk about gender essentialism, putting femininity into a body that has a vulva and masculinity into a body that has a penis is that we end up not embracing our masculinity and femininity and that creates so much, from my perspective, spiritual dysfunction. What do you think, Rachel?
0: I wanna look something up.
1: Okay, cool. Layla
0: Martin talks about, and Layla Martin's um a sex coach for those of you who are not familiar with her work. She's pretty amazing. That's what it is. She talks about feminine energy and masculine energy as radiant versus magnetic. Ooh. Which I love. And so radiant energy is the masculine energy that's going outward, and magnetic energy is your feminine energy that's pulling things toward you that's more receptive. Mm. And but I think when we use the words like radiant and magnetic, we don't naturally gender them in our minds.
1: No, we don't. Um,
0: and I think almost in some ways we sort of swap the gendering where we feel like radiance is more feminine and, and um, magnet magne- magnetism. Magnetic? <laughs> magnetism. Oh, somebody correct that. <laughs> <laughs> As I edit this, I will figure that one out. But... Um, magnetism, I think it's magnetism, magnetism feels more masculine to me Mm. when they're actually swapped in that sort of binary. But that's kind of, I think that's the best definition that I've found that I feel most resonant with when I think about energy poles that we generally define as masculine and feminine. I also really like to use the words yin and yang, because i think that those are also things that are not as triggering for people coming from western society there's also of course the problem of like you know acculturation what is that yeah
1: and i do think confucianism does i don't remember which one is assigned feminine or masculine but i think in confucianism it does subordinate the feminine within the yin and the yang so it has It's its own history of being subjected Yeah, it's in, it's in
0: Taoism. And I look at it more from the Chinese medicine perspective, which is more, you want them to be balanced within yourself, where Mm, when you're doing body work on someone, whether that be from an acupressure standpoint or shiatsu, or whether it's an acupuncture standpoint, you want your yin and yang energy to be, to be balanced within you. And each organ has its own, um, is either considered a yin organ or a yang organ. Each channel of your body is considered yin or yang, and you want things to be balanced energetically because if you're two in one direction or two in the other direction, you get stuck in in a in a funk of one kind or another so there's also that component which I think is is actually quite i wouldn't say empowering per
1: se, but neutralizing,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but it also makes me think about how like we end up um having a because we view God such an essentially masculine way or in male way, it actually messes up the, for lack of a better word, yin and yang, because I know that that's not Christianity at all. And I don't want to sound like I'm uh, appropriating, but uh, yin and yin, it takes that and it messes it up because we then don't have the balance between the masculine and the feminine in our understanding of God. So then how can anyone who presents themselves as feminine be the Imago Dei if God is essentially male, and it ends up really like cutting off half of the feminine experience of God, which I do think Mary Magdalene, in many ways, in her stories, very much understood like almost a, a heroine's journey in terms of understanding who who God is. Where like it's it's a journey within the self towards being lifted up seven times a day by angels that is a part of our journey towards knowing Christ. It's an essential feminine journey, which I also talk about in the erotic convent.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have some thoughts about that in, the, in just reference to how it is that the church history has functioned yeah. and yeah. how the church functions as an institution, whether that be the Catholic church institution or generally speaking, the broad term of Christian church um, and how that, I think a lot of its dysfunction comes from being overly focused on the masculine aspects of being yeah and that is really problematic i know that we also wanted to talk a little bit about like the sexological science behind gender it's yes, talk about so that it. it is um is clear for people because i think part of what is really problematic to me is that from the catholic perspective looking at natural laws our basis for understanding gender if you don't take in to account the science, you don't actually get a good theology because you're not actually looking at reality, you're looking at your preconceived notions or or, or um, social prescriptions around those concepts. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: super quickly, we are all pretty much familiar with the concept of there's XX and XY chromosomes, generally speaking, when it comes to gender, but that's not actually the totality of what people walking around in the world have. There's a variety of differences that can occur on that level. There's a variety of differences that can occur on other levels in our our development, in our bodies. And those different things create intersex individuals. Intersexuality happens about the same amount as people who have red hair. So if you know people who have red hair, which most of us do, you know someone who's intersex, they just probably
1: haven't told you don't
0: talk about it and (laughs) they may not even know about it themselves because a lot of times these various they're called conditions which sounds really gross to me Um, but intersexuality doesn't necessarily actually have any external presentations sometimes sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't and that's just the reality of how we're made and I think in the same way that we wouldn't say oh God didn't mean to make people red-haired. That was a mistake. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't
0: be saying, oh, intersexuality is a mistake. God didn't intend for this to be the way that human beings present themselves in their, in their, sex, in their sexuality and in their gender. That's just, that's a mistake that God made. And ultimately, these theologies of gender essentialism are saying that. They're not necessarily intending to say it that because to say it that way, because I think most of the people who came up with gender essentialism were not thinking or were not conscious of the fact that intersex conditions existed, and they certainly were not considering the lived realities of people who are transgender. But there is a reality there that we need to make space for. And I think that intersexuality, as a reality that people exist in, is something that. If we were to take that into account and take it really seriously as these people are made in the image of God, we would have to change our, our theologies to have a better understanding of gender and a better understanding of sex. Um, yes. And we'd have to bring somebody on who would be able to speak better to the, and the understanding of how to make a the trans experience really a part of our theologies from a natural law perspective. I have not done enough research on that concept myself, but I'm absolutely certain that there's a way for that to be true as well, because where we experience gender. And I would say that to an extent that's mostly in our, our, our psychology and in our minds is, is a real part of who we are. And a lot of people combine soul and mind as one thing. So if you Mm -hmm. feel in your soul mind that you are a gender, that is equally important from a theological perspective as what your body presents as in the world.
1: Yeah, I'm, um, and I don't know if you can hear that rooster behind me, but no. I live on an Island. Um, so they, uh, people have roosters here. Um, so that also makes me think is, I have a series on my blog that does, um, interviews women through their deconstruction process. And actually I have a one that's coming out today that, and so this is like weeks, weeks ago now, if you're listening to this, but uh, where she's a trans woman and she talks about her experience of coming to see her transness, not as a mistake, like something that like her body was born wrong and that she's fixing it by her trans experience, but that her trans body is the Imago day. That, that she tr- her transness is a part of her being the image of God and like and and transitioning I see that like the way she describes it is also a part of that imago day. So I'm not that's not a scientific explanation of it, but I thought it was a really beautiful way to not see yourself the way she doesn't see herself is wrong. There was nothing wrong with her body. It was all right. The wrong is the fact that people in her surrounding world and in society don't see her as right. That's That's where the error comes up, Um, which I thought was a really beautiful way of explaining it.
0: Yeah, there's someone I would love to have on to talk to at some point about her experience of transitioning and then becoming um, a UCC pastor. Mm. And how similarly, before she transitioned, she was a father and she has three kids and that. Is such an important part of her experience, and certainly that's not a mistake.
1: No, and in queerness, when we embrace queerness, we're embracing the idea that a woman can father three kids. Like that's the queerness, and I it's something I really like thinking about gender essentialism back into like the theology idea. Is I was reading a feminist theologian who was kind of crapping on Julia of Norwich, a Julian of Norwich. Sorry for saying Christ seeing Christ or Jesus Christ as mother and saying that it is a masculinizing of the feminine of the mo- of motherhood and i have always read that for myself as like a really great way of queering Christ or queering Jesus and understanding that that this that Jesus Christ as this being as this human as this Son of God, entity was without gender, and despite, as we already explained, like his penis, um, that he existed beyond his gender, and that there is something beyond beyond that that I, I wish Christianity could embrace more and understand and understand is like a legit, beautiful, amazing thing. These, these intersections of gender or the, the amalgam of gender. Yeah.
0: And as you say that, it's, in my lived experience as a cis woman, mm-hmm. my gender does not define the totality of who I am. Right. And if it did, that would be very weird to me. That would be very challenging for me to feel like that was the totality of my being was my gender. Um, And I think that part of what these gender essentialist theologies really try to impose on people is that idea that my gender is the totality of who I am and that my gender is defined by my physical body, Mm -hmm. which doesn't match up with most people's lived
1: experiences. Right. And we can't, we just can't trap people in their bodies. I do believe that there is something sacred about our bodies. I don't want to detach us from our bodies, but there's also this intertwining thing. Um, So is there anything else you want to make sure we say before we wrap up? I just wanted to mention super
0: quickly that the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops, um, one of Joe Biden's first executive orders talked about, I think it was basically like assuring rights for homosexual people to get married or no Mm -hmm. oh no no it was no gender discrimination at work that's what it was Mm -hmm. it was in opposition to gender discrimination and the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops responded by writing a document um not all of them but several of them the usual folks that you'd expect for this kind of thing Timothy Dolan from New York um Michael Barber Along those lines, but basically what it said, and I'll just read it because it's super quick. It's like three sentences said Wednesday's executive order on sex discrimination exceeds the court's decision. It was in response to a Supreme Court decision. It threatens to infringe the rights of people who recognize the truth of sexual difference or who uphold the institution of lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. This may manifest in mandates that, for example, erode health care conscience rights, or needed and time honored sex specific spaces and activities. In addition, the court had taken note to whatever. Okay. But basically I just wanna mention that because where we come from, like this gender essentialism conversation is um, next to the conversation of gay marriage. And yeah. the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman is because of gender essentialism. And I think that, or at least in part because of gender essentialism, and that's what the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops is responding to. They don't want to have to be forced to allow for gay marriage to happen in their institutions because of the fact that they see it as an erosion of God's reality as two specific genders existing and only two.
1: There's so many things I want to say in response to this. Um... The first thing I often think of is, like, it never has been required for a pastor or a priest to marry anyone for any reason that they don't want to. Priests and pastors will deny marrying someone because they don't think they've dated long enough. They'll deny marrying people because they're not members at the church. They'll deny marrying people because they feel— My husband
0: and I couldn't get married because at the church that I actually—my parents actually went to because we lived together at the time when we were going to get married.
1: There are, I mean, I, um, I I know pastors who've said, um, especially from my conservative background, who have not married someone because they didn't believe one of the people in that marriage was truly born again. And I'm saying that in quotes for those of you who are listening to that. Um, so the, it is never, the law has, freedom of religion has always allowed pastors and priests to choose to not marry people for whatever god dang reason they don't wanna marry someone. And it can be super arbitrary from your perspective, but there will never be a law that requires someone to marry people who are same sex if they don't want to. And also, I really wanna know who these queer couples are that are insisting that they wanna be married by homosexual pastors and priests. Who are they? Because I don't see many lgbtq people being upset that a homophobic pastor can't marry them I, I don't see them really wanting that person to be involved in their marriage vows <laughs> like...
0: i think the pain for couples that do want to get married in the church and are you know somebody's trans or the couple is is both of the same gender or whatever um it really is a pain because it's like sure especially for my friends who are Catholic and fit into those categories for them, this is a sacrament and they want to be able to celebrate the sacrament of marriage. And, and in, in the Catholic theology, you actually marry each other. The sacrament isn't actually performed by the priest. It is simply sort of overseen by the priest. I don't know. I can't remember the exact language, but like the people getting married actually perform the, the sacrament to each other. Hmm. And which is cool, I think and and of course, consummation is like an assumption in the process of that like that's the culminating act that sort of officiates the sacrament. but where it's painful is like you're being denied a sacrament. it's like when you're being denied sure. communion yeah um, or you're not being given absolution when you go to confession, not because you're not willing to do something but just for an arbitrary reason and, the couples i know who are very much catholic in their faith yeah have either found priests that are willing to officiate or they have found really interesting workarounds and we can invite some of those people on to sort of ask about how did you figure out a way to get married in the church even though you're a lesbian couple or even though you know whatever um and a lot of times what it comes down to and this is really fascinating and goes into a different tangent of of the brilliance of Catholicism religious sisters are oftentimes asked one thing is in the in the Catholic church religious sisters who are older tend to be far more liberal than priests if you find a religious sister who is over the age of 70 there are so many
1: radical nuns out there they are
0: radical yeah <laughs> and they will oftentimes you know go online and get ordained in the church of whatever the heck, in order to be able to officiate a marriage between a gay couple. Mm. Um, And that has been something that my spiritual director, who's a religious sister, has done. Um, I've recommended that to couples that have come to me and been like, we want to get married in the church, but how do we do it? And I'm like, well... You can't quite do it, but this is something you can do instead. Yeah, And then I've also had people who have found priests that weren't willing to marry them officially, but were willing to bestow a blessing upon their relationship at a normal normal mass yeah. after the fact. So also, if you're in one of those categories, those are some ideas as to how you can make that happen. Um, but I think that's where the pain is, is it's like yeah, you want to do it within the church for... Any number of reasons, and you're being told that you can't—that God's right. not going to bless your marriage—and that's yeah. just incredibly painful.
1: Sure, and and I and I don't mean to like deny the pain of those of those people because I think that that's real. So thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I think it's it's just shocking to me. I think when conservatives are afraid that their rights are going to be taken away from them. And um, unfortunately, as I certainly say, it'll have to be an institutional shift within the institution. It's very unlikely that the government is going to come in and force an institutional change, particularly within religious systems, which is an institutional shift that I, I very deeply hope for. And I know that this is the thing that the church, the Episcopal Church in America split over is not wanting to allow LGBTQ out bishops to be able to be bishops, and then also not allow marriage um, LGBTQ marriages in in their churches. And there are still, even in the Eastern Massachusetts diocese, which is one of the most progressive um, Episcopal dioceses in the country, there are still churches that will not marry same-sex couples or LGBTQ couples, and one of the things that i think is n- uh, nerve-wracking or just or dis- disappointing about that is that it's almost a, it's a false allyship because it says you can come here you can pray here you can confess here you can bring your kids here you can certainly tithe here but you can't um you cannot be acknowledged as a valid couple in our in our congregation which, and I, I know that we're, we're getting into a long episode, which I'm fine with, because I think we're diving into some good stuff, but um, it also comes back to like this idea that Francis, Pope Francis is so progressive. And I see that he's pushing a lot of progressive things, but still is not acknowledging the spiritual marriage of LGBTQ couples. So it's, it's almost like he's throwing out like crumbs to keep people coming which is what i'm observed like what i see when as observing it it's like tossing of crumbs when it's like can we have a papal you're gonna have to correct me on what this is called but like a like a papal statement like you sat on your chair you put on your hat and you made a statement <laughs> that lgbtq couples <laughs> are able to get married in the catholic church like I, that's what i want to see and until then like i'm not going to be dancing around him like saying that he's like super pro lgbtq rights he's throwing crumbs
0: that's how i sort of feel as well i think it um the methodist church also split recently over the it Methodist did. church in the u.s split over lgbtq um clergy members which i thought was right. interesting um the reason that there's, so oh gosh, we can talk about Francis at a different point, but because he's certainly moving in the right direction, but he has his hands tied behind his back because sure. the church is a massive institution. It is global. Where the church is growing are places that tend to be more conservative, especially when it comes to topics around sexuality and gender. And so he doesn't want to isolate the places of his church that are growing the most, while at the same time, the places that are diminishing the most, people are not super likely to come back to the church simply because he automatically says gay people are allowed to get married. People would suddenly be happy about it. And I would be more happy to like participate in things if that's what happened. But he can't do that because there will be a schism. And he doesn't want a schism to occur, especially when the, his two most recent predecessors John Paul II and Benedict XVI really pushed conservatism yeah. all globally and specifically in places like the U.S. where we now have a massive split amongst, you know, there's conservative Catholics and there's progressive Catholics and there's some moderates in the middle, but even the moderates are sort of moving toward conservatism because of how much we've heard stuff from the two people that came before Francis. Mm. And it's, it's really problematic. Really problematic. Because yeah. what it means is the people that are growing up in those spaces are more conservative than the people who are older than they are. So once the older people sort of die out, we have we are left with a more conservative church. Yeah. And that church, I do not think, will be in alignment with what Jesus Christ
1: intended. Yeah. I, I agree. And you're talking about the Methodists brings me back to something that um, I think is really important to discuss as well for those who are listening, who are women who consider yourself Christian feminists or egalitarians, which in the Protestant space, egalitarian means you believe that women do not need to submit to their husbands, that husbands and wives are equal and that, um, and also very often also support women being uh, pastors. So, or even teaching. Like they would say even like I'm okay with women teaching because some Protestants don't allow that like I said. So there is um there's a lot of times that people who are in that space still do not support marriage equality. And what I want to emphasize I think in this conversation when you brought up the Methodists as well I think this is something that came up a lot is that gender essentialism, this hierarchy of male and female within Protestant theology is also what keeps lgbtq people from being able to be married as well as keeps women from being ordained it's the same theology it's an idea of a man is a man and he is ahead and a woman is a woman and she is below and any disruption of that is the problem so if so it's very complicated um and so i think one of the reasons we're, we're switching between gender and lgbtq rights and creating a like inter- intertwining these topics together, as I wanna explain really clearly, is like that is because it, it, it all lives in the same basket. The Danvers statement talks about LGBTQ rights and male headship because it's all in the same basket. And if, we, and if we're okay with women going into leadership, that's queering their hierarchy. That's queering their theologies of gender and putting women in a position of the head and that's a problem because it's queering it um i'm not saying that you then become a lesbian that's not what i'm saying i'm saying it's disrupting the gender binary and that's the concern and what what i think we're both saying is like there there is no binary it's a whole beautiful rainbow (laughs) like there's the me- there's, there's a the spectrum metaphor. of gender. Yes, both
0: from a like lived experience perspective, as well as from a physiological perspective, as well as from a chromosomal perspective, and you know any number of ways. There is a spectrum of gender. We can certainly acknowledge that there are two poles, but there's a spectrum in between, and that I would imagine that just like most of us, if we were to put ourselves on the Kinsey scale, aren't perfect zeros or sixes on the gender spectrum, probably many of us are not perfect, like fully masculine or fully feminine. We're somewhere in the middle as where we generally hang out, recognizing that we have those poles within us regardless.
1: Mm. All right. Well, we are so happy that you joined us again for another Tuesday morning, and we will see you next week. Talk to y'all later.